Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. So the lizards moved, so I took their spot, and I just met a really friendly bunny rabbit. And some butterflies on a hike I went on today that was probably about four hours, so I'm a little bit tired. And I was thinking about flow as choiceless awareness when I was on the hike because of what Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler talk about if somebody's like falling to their death and they manage to save their life and their reaction time and their calculation of things is faster to the point where they're able to save their life somehow and Basically, they're saying it's faster than conscious choice. But what is conscious choice? It's a bunch of programs overlaid over our senses. So instead of sensing and acting, we're enacting this so-called conscious choice. And so they're studying how it's easier to get into flow in these states where the body is put under sort of extreme circumstances and in those extreme circumstances there's no point in choosing with those programs that we've been conditioned into seeing through so it's a bunch of conditioning that is the thing that we think chooses. And all of that is the accumulated me programs and, and knowledge. So we're choosing through our knowledge. And that knowledge is overlaid over our senses. So we're not sensing things holistically and acting with our senses without thinking. And so what I'm saying is that to me, it sounds like what Krishnamurti talks about with choiceless awareness. And what that means in a way is that there's no programming there. Doing the calculating, which is the choosing. So if, if there's no one there choosing, then what is choosing? 
well, what is choosing when one is falling to one's death and manages without thinking? Like basically the person is falling in gravity faster than thinking. So gravity, the speed of gravity and falling in gravity is faster than thinking. We can't think and decide, oh, I'm going to put my hand here and I'm going to put my hand there and I'm going to do this and that. Something else comes in. So something else is choosing, something else is moving us and animating us when we're falling at the speed that gravity induces on us. And I feel like, in a way, consciousness itself chooses, but it's not really choosing. So an ego me program might choose between A bit or B bit. Whereas when there's no programming there choosing, then there's infinite bits available. And the conscious will or the me or the ego is choosing between very limited amount of bits that it's been programmed into choosing between. And so I was thinking about how while walking down the mountain down the switchbacks that when we walk and we're going down a mountain we fall so we're not actually walking as much as falling in gravity but we're able to control that with our legs and in the same way We might think we're choosing to move our legs, but we're just moving our legs and gravity is helping. So there's this sort of play between the two, there's this dance. And I feel like we also have a field of consciousness. And the programming prevents us from falling in the field of consciousness. Whereas if we were just falling in the field of consciousness, that field of consciousness in combination with it impressing upon all of our senses holistically would animate us and that would allow us to act without choosing. So much of our movement anyway we don't choose to do but it's sort of partly gravity and partly us. So I think there's this other element, this field of consciousness that in a way, in map consciousness, we're falling in the field of consciousness without the programs in the way. The programs are kind of the net, the parachute that allow us to sail through life and give us time to like make these decisions and things when, you know, the parachute is a false structure So the reason I'm saying this is because it demystifies it in a way, not just these few words about it, but to act like it's some big mystifying thing that we need to be falling out of the sky in order to go into is making it seem like it's something so 
unattainable. I feel like the field of consciousness It doesn't choose, that makes it sound. The field of consciousness animates us. So just like walking down a hill in the field of gravity, the field of gravity is helping to animate us. So the field of consciousness, when it interacts with our body and all of our senses, animates us. But there's this tension of our programs that constricts us and actually keeps our animation very limited and fragmented according to very few programs. It would be like being in a video game and, and having very few moves that one can do on the controller. It's like the difference between the original Nintendo system and Sony PlayStation, the latest one. There's just so much more that one can do. So the original controller would be like the choices, the programming that we have now. And we're being controlled by the programming as opposed to the totality of the mind and the field of consciousness and the universe. I can see this stuff so subtly and clearly. It's fascinating. It's like studying the animation of the mind. And I'm wondering if this self-dialogue about all of this is seeing all those subtle nuances of it to learn that language and then it's like progressive training of seeing and perception because the first experience of map consciousness is so intense. But then as one explores the subtle nuances of mapping consciousness itself, if one is seeing it that way all the time in daily life, then it's not like being blind one day and then having full vision the next. It's having that vision every day. And then it just seems normal and again I still haven't come off my medications or anything but I'm hoping to do that when I get back home. I'm not sure what the language is but I also feel like it's the language of, of beauty because Beauty isn't human abstractions and programs. It's not the way we've been trained to see, but it's everything else. 
So one way to see beyond it would be just to see when one is seeing something that is a human construct. And I wonder if words can be used in service of beauty. I think that must have been how they originally came about. A sense of awe and wonder. But now they're being used to divide up and fragment the beauty at which point it's no longer beautiful. And perhaps we need to speak that language again in order for the human brain to allow human consciousness to fully inhabit it again in terms of the upcoming generation. And we have all these words running through our nervous system, like static, like noise. And we don't have words and perception of beauty running through our nervous system. And our nervous system is designed to perceive beauty. So if we want to get back to its original function and design, then learning that language is important. I was saying to someone that if you ever see me kind of just standing there and walking in circles maybe, that I'm in a holding pattern, waiting for the next thing to catch my attention someone to walk up and say, hey, you want to do this or do you want to do that? It really is just like wandering with love, like that shirt that I have. And I feel like the mental health system could be a type of holding pattern for people. It's holding them in that pattern, but we can also start to transform into wandering with love. And wandering with love in a way is like allowing the field of consciousness to move us and understanding that it will catch us just like our legs will catch us each step we take down a mountain. Because right now we don't use all our senses, we just use our me sense, which is our programming. We filter everything through the me, and we make choices based on that. Can we allow our senses to bathe in the field of consciousness and start to awaken our senses holistically and move us as the moment? just like we move with gravity. What can we gravitate towards with consciousness? What can we consciousitate towards? So part of it is learning the language of perception. 
Perception action in the field of consciousness. And partly why things can get a little bit dicey is when we're in the field of consciousness in lower levels. And a lot of times we act accordingly. We act out that level. And I feel it's important to sort of protect oneself from that. Because we become more like ping pong balls than having these programs of control. We could even imagine that everything we think and imagine, if we projected it out of our eyeballs and that energy of those images and sounds actually has force in terms of making something happen. It's an active agent. So what is the light coming out of one's eyes? Is it good images or bad images? And beyond that, what about no images? Because the image we're projecting from our eyes is the choice we're making. We're choosing to extract that information from reality, which is usually based on old information. And so not projecting any images and being choicelessly aware is a qualitative difference. And then anything is possible because our perception is clean and Consciousness itself, that energy field of consciousness, can animate us towards that which the mind would want us to create. And these images that we make are our partiality, and they make life partial. And we're re-experiencing from these old partialities. And it's actually a limiter. The light and sound we project from ourselves limits all of the information out there. And I don't know what, ex I don't know to what extent that is necessary. It seems to be necessary. I actually feel like the consciousness animating us versus choice from programs, it gestures us, it acts through us, as us, and through those actions we move 
towards something else than our programs, which is actually moving away from life. It's contracting away from life. It's contracting away from actually meeting the mind. And when the mind and the human beingness meet, and there's no me as this mediator, then the mind is what moves us. Consciousness. And then anything becomes possible. And I feel like in a way, with these crisis events that seem to happen, it's like going as far along as one can on that particular path of the mind animating oneself. And then one gets to the limit and it becomes fearful. And it's a type of death in a way. I feel like one could be dying to alternate realities because one's brain is in the quantum state and then when one goes far enough along that path, certain realities have to die. But one experiences that as something terrifying. And one might even have to experience that extreme terror in order to sort of save other people from experiencing that. Because there's so much terror out there that people are not experiencing because they're using certain means to get through it and there's nothing wrong with that per se but it's not resolving those energies and they have to be resolved some way in consciousness i don't quite know how that works in terms of this whole mechanism of terrifyingness i feel like we could gesture ourselves quantum I wonder what kind of lifestyle design would facilitate being open to possibility and, mo and moving in possibility as possibility instead of moving in programs as programs. And I've already had that sensation in map consciousness, I'm just wondering why it seems to burn out. And somebody once said to me, of higher level of consciousness, don't push, let it come to you. I'm not really sure what that means, but I feel like it partly means that it doesn't take time, so it doesn't matter if I sit here in the same spot for 10 years, and then if I got up and I was moving in possibility, whatever was meant to be created could be created very quickly, or it could be created the same way if I got up and did that now, so it doesn't really matter in terms of time and it's already here, it's a matter of really just going for it, I guess.
whatever that is. And I feel I'll take some time to figure that out. Maybe I'll continue to wander after this. I was reading a bit of a book by Krishnamurti called Fire in the Mind. And there was a bit in there about listening. He said, those who are passionate to find out who want to hear will listen, not to me. And then he said, it's in the air. And I think that's the subtle hearing of insight and seeing of insight. And I sort of realized that seeing in that way is harvesting insight and giving voice to it. Seeing those subtle things. I can see what I'm saying, but it's hard to really put words to it. And then I also realized in a way I'm harvesting my mania right now, even though I'm not in the state of mania. I feel like I'm doing everything I would be doing if I was really manic, but I don't feel manic. So I guess I'm embodying my mania, but I'm also talking about stuff and I'm taking pictures of my notebooks and posting it on my blog at a later date. And that's something I would totally do if I was just really manic. I would think, wow, this is so profound, I need to share it. And I'm not even thinking it's so profound, I need to share it. I'm just sharing it for the, the heck of it. To really not have any buildup of anything. Partially because I just forget. So I can't even really think of accumulating stuff and then waiting and then sharing it later. It has to be done right away or not at all. And that's kind of part of how the mind works in the process. So it's just going according to a different unedited process. And that's the thing too, is when one gets into that state of consciousness, it's an unedited state. There's no preforming of words and planning what to say. So just really getting with that in every aspect of life not thinking anything is worth clinging on to for later. So I'm wondering if I'm in that higher energy state but not feeling it. And I talked about in earlier videos how the neurology grows in ways to be able to contain and harness that energy and not be overpowered by it because there's more nerve tracks for that and I don't even know if that's true but it seems to have some kind of truth to it. So I'm doing these actions that I would do if I was really manic but I'm not. 
So in a way, I'm just living that way, congruent with what that energy would animate me to do beyond my supposed control. But the thing is, once I have the nerves for that energy to animate me in that way, it doesn't feel like I'm out of control because it's not energy beyond that which my nerves can handle, if you know what I mean. So in a way, if I was surfing a wave that was bigger than the one I'd ever surfed before, I might feel like I'm going to fall or I'm out of control. Whereas if I have surfed that same size wave a million times, it's going to feel natural. So it's the same thing with surfing consciousness. That wave of consciousness energy comes in and the nerves have to get used to moving in those ways. And that consciousness can come in and take over any one of us. So really being able to move with the wave of consciousness is imperative because if a big wave comes in and takes over even more people, it's going to be really chaotic. So the more we can move towards embodying those gestures and ways of being, the better. And I had the sense that choice is a program, choice itself, and that is the fundamental program. Whereas when that program is gone, then there's just the senses unadulterated by choice. And I feel like what that consciousness is, is the unknown in a way. So we have to be fully able to sense the unknown and act accordingly instead of being always projecting our programs and then acting based on that. And one can have access to that energy and be acting and acting and acting with the unknown and then get to a point where it's beyond the comfort zone of the nervous system and it gets freaked out and turns back. And I wrote down, there is a possible world filled with love. If we're all filled with love, if we're all moved by love, what kind of world would that create? And I feel like the real app of reality is epigesturetics. Every move we make is recorded in the fabric of reality and moves us towards a certain possibility. But we can choose a different action the next moment if we're always acting based on the movement of love that doesn't take time to figure that one out. So we can immediately change our path. And I feel like our gestures harvest and uncover that world of love. As we move as love, it's like our bodies are painting that into actuality. It's kind of like carving a sculpture. And as we move in the fabric of love as love, that sculpts us as well. It sculpts our neurology and our body. It's like a game of love. 
and our body is quantum, it has quantum effects, it makes things possible, it creates, and it has a certain range of motion and gestures. The music of love can play through us. Gestures and words are the notes of the quantum body instrument. Can we go from seeing problems to seeing possibility? And we've been turned into thought processors instead of quantum processors. Possibility, creators. And our thought process creates a vortex of sound that keeps us separate from the flow of life and and that listening, that hearing. We can't hear that subtleness when we're listening to our own thoughts. We're giving voice to the past, so we can't give voice to the moment. And we've superimposed our thought process over life process. And I wonder if freedom is from the pre-formulation of words. And I want to say again that Krishnamurti said that meditation is unpremeditated art. So nothing premeditated, nothing going on in terms of cognition. And I feel like that's a similar way to saying harvest practice and body or practice one's mania in a way. It becomes an art form. So in a way, it's the art of mania. And maybe that's part of map consciousness, is the art of living. There's no formula for living. And if one puts a formula for living, then that's not living. Because formulas aren't alive. And human beings and other living things are alive. And I don't think we live in reality, we live in me-ality. And I wonder if our language can be our fruit, a plentiful harvest that we share. The fruit humans produce is language. And right now we're not really making fruit with it, we're making weeds and weed killer. Can our language be of insight and create vision? And I wrote down a peer, as in one peer, and two peer, as in two people. But what I was looking at was a peer is what appears. And two peer is to look deeply into. So a peer to peer is what appears to look deeply into. And I was thinking about that in terms of my brain buddy and wondering what we'll end up talking about. We might talk about our experiences and there could be commonality there. And it might show in a way that we speak the same language a language of seeing and experience and seeing beyond experience and what it possibly means 
and harvesting the fruit of language differently and sharing it. I wonder if so-called psychosis is fear leaving the system or fears of leaving the system of thought because there's some supposed safety in that. It could be fear of change, fear of transformation, fear of breaking out of the chrysalis. It seems like a bit of a tide. This energy comes in, this consciousness, and animates us. And then it goes out. And then when it goes out, all the things on the seafloor are exposed. So they have to be adapted to when there's no consciousness and when there's a lot of consciousness. So in a way, we have to be kind of like barnacles. And our vision gets written over by programs in the structure of thought, like the mental health system. We speak in a different way and we're speaking a little bit out there and not quite making sense because we're learning a new language of perception. And so afterwards we learn the language of pathologizing ourselves but it would be cool to still keep learning this language of perception and being animated by consciousness it's kind of like when you're a kid and around one parent you know you can be goofy and around the other parent you know you have to be serious it's sort of like realizing that we're being subject to certain authoritative structures or not. And I was thinking about falling in gravity and how the body takes over and the senses take over in order to save our life. And I was thinking that the speed of consciousness is kind of like the speed of falling in gravity. It's way faster than thinking. So again, it's just the brain operating at a faster speed, and it's a speed faster than thinking. So when we think that we are a thinking process, then it can be scary because we think we're out of control. But really, it's just faster processing. And then the slow processing of thinking is afraid. And that it's sort of like if somebody falls in gravity and they manage to save themselves somehow they're not, and they realize it was quicker than the speed of thought they didn't have to think about it they would just be happy that they managed to save their life That, and in that way when the consciousness comes in it's happening to save life in a way because it's life energy itself, this consciousness. And thought is delay, it's dividing up life. And so sometimes we fall in consciousness. And then after it happens, we're all thinking and stuff like, oh, this means I'm ill or something. But it could have been some other mechanism of healing and helping the brain and life and the field of the universe. It's a faster processing. And again, since thought can never be faster than that process of consciousness, we can never 
really think about it and encapsulate it so there's no real point so when it's over to say that means it's all this mental illness and stuff that could never capture what actually happened or even after something like a terrifying so-called psychosis just forget about it and so when we're in that map conscious state we're being pulled by strings kind of like puppets of the environment puppets of perception right now we're puppets of thought we're puppets of the past but we could actually be puppets of the universe the word puppet is kind of funny so being a puppet of the universe is like being fully alive whereas being puppets of thought is just being a biological robot and this choice process is very binary it's good or bad whereas the consciousness is animation it's multi-dimensional animation being animated by the sights, the perceptions, the insights, the sounds, the feeling, the smells, everything all at once. So the quantum is a computation of animation and thought is a contraction of this animation. It tones down the animation by toning the nervous system with sounds. And I feel like we're animated by gravity and consciousness. Just like we can fall in gravity, we can fall in consciousness. And we don't actually fall in consciousness, but it's the faster speed that is faster than thought that renders thought obsolete. And then that's when we're flowing with consciousness. And consciousness is related to gravity because our thoughts contract our nervous system and our muscles and change our center of gravity. And it changes our degrees of freedom in motion and how we gesture in actuality. So less thoughts mean less gravity means more consciousness and more action and more degrees of freedom in gesture, which gestures in these other realities. And these thought sounds images through our nervous system prevent clarity of perception that is needed for the fluidity of action and learning. And I say learning because this perception is its own learning process and we learn to move as consciousness and as the moment fluidly as opposed to moving according to rigid programs. It's actually learning how to be alive in a way. Learning how to move in the field of consciousness, learning how to dance, as love. I feel like the mind of humanity, the total mind, is trying to free us from thought. Thought was necessary, but the mind of humanity is testing whether it can release us from those programs and trust us to perceive and act as love. And it feels powerful. And so when we get in touch with that power, do we share it or do we use it against people? Would we use it to hurt or would we use it to help? 
And I feel one of the measures of this is how we act towards nature. So can we look at another creature? Doesn't matter where it is on the totem pole. And look with love and respect and admiration for the part that it plays in the whole. And when we do that, it's registered in that creature. It's registered in the mind of the collective of that creature. And that creature knows. Just like how today I was sitting and a lizard just came up right beside me and then ran over my shoes that I had taken off and put beside me and then started sunning himself. And it seems like we all have thought parachutes in order to slow down moving in the field of love as love. We're attached to our me. We don't understand what would be acting if we didn't have this parachute of thoughts. We can fall in love, but we can't fall in gravity. We can fall in consciousness. I think part of my test was years ago when I made that video with the flies and I was in awe of these flies. And in a way, it could have been my invitation into these perceptions and starting to make sense of them backwards and forwards at the same time. And I said in the video, I wouldn't hurt a fly. And one way to get into flow is to look at nature beyond human constructs and not look at the separate thing and name it, but actually see its interrelatedness and be curious about what it does with its time and its life energy. I wonder if we can let beauty run through our nervous system, run through us, run as us, and animate us. We're meant to be the most beautiful creatures on earth with the ability to appreciate beauty, to look at it, and also to make more of it. But we're using our beautiful instrument to destroy beauty. And we don't realize we're destroying ourselves. I was happy to find that quote in the Krishnamurti book that says, when we destroy nature, we destroy ourselves. Because I had that sense a long time ago. So beauty is the fuel Truth is perception, and love is action. But all of those could be interchanged. And I remember Krishnamurti saying that that beauty is indestructible. I think the indestructible element is that beauty. That's always there. I feel like thought is a holding pattern. It's holding so many human beings in a pattern. And really we want to be released from that pattern.
and the me is a pattern. And I feel like our senses become a quantum sense. We sense possibilities, we see relationships. And that's where we learn. I was editing a video and I was watching myself and while watching myself, it was the first time I really had this sense that I could see that I'm speaking what I'm seeing because I was going on and on for like 10 minutes and as I was saying more and more I was actually speaking from what I was seeing and I'm always doing that but it was the first time I actually could see myself seeing as I was speaking and I probably could before but it was the first time I was really aware that I was really following what I was seeing as I was saying it because it was the first time I was hearing it since I said it because I say things from nothing but I really had this extra sense of seeing what I was saying and maybe that's good in terms of if somebody watches this one day if one can actually see what I'm saying when I'm saying it or see that I'm saying what I'm seeing not saying stuff from preformed thoughts in my brain because that's really the whole point of it is to be able to see and say for yourself or listen and say listen to these subtle things in the air really we just want to be in touch with that voice and give voice to that because it's infinite I wonder what happens when love loses control. It seems like thought is trying to control this love. It's afraid of it. I feel like what we project out of our eyes, the light and sound, limits possibility. It's premature collapsing of the wave function. We don't allow all the information to penetrate our being and then make the quantum calculation and respond with our full being. We respond according to the programs and images that we're projecting. So it's like that light coming out of us and that sound coming out of us that is invisible to others is meeting and breaking up all the information, light and sound coming towards us. And so it's chopping up all the information so one can't receive the whole impression on the clear mind screen and collapse the wave function. And I feel like it's actually, that's part of what creation is, is, is having that correct information clearly impress upon one and then responding creatively. One can respond in many possible ways, so it's not necessarily one correct response, but it's definitely likely actually all correct responses. doesn't matter what you do really, but when one is choosing between programs, 
it can never be a correct response because it's old and it's it's gone out to meet the information coming in and and impinged upon it and, and impeded it so one isn't even getting any of the information so so when all the information is collected in a quantum way one has the degrees of freedom to respond in many possible ways and the thing is that when one is in touch with that one doesn't even really know oneself what one's going to say or do exactly and in that way one is kind of entertained by oneself because everything is surprising even what one does because it's not coming from past programs so if I even think about my day today I didn't really plan anything it was a day of complete possibility the past is collapsing the present is impinging upon the present or it's actually making it so we can't collapse wave functions because there's a hologram in the way. After my hike today, I got back and everything seemed brighter. Even the kitchen, it just seemed so bright. And there was an orange and I picked it up and it seemed so bright. And I was thinking about how beauty is related to color. So when things seem more beautiful and vibrant, it must have some kind of association to the quality of the nervous system. And it's sort of a measure of where one's at. If one can be in awe of an orange. When one has seen oranges all day long for, for several weeks, then that's a different quality beyond the things as they are or the things that we would normally measure them as like this is an orange big deal and I think there could be a diligence in consciousness to keep the programs in abeyance and I feel like consciousness is when we are really awake so there's a sleep state which is sort of like glow and then there's a programmed state which is kind of like no as in knowing things, acting based on previous knowing, and also N-O as in just saying no to the living whatever one is encountering, and the awake state, which is flow. So glow, know, and flow. I hope to create perceivers, seers, people who can see meaning and unfold that can we be masters of mania of the wave of consciousness can we surf that wave can we be moved by celebrating possibilities instead of conflict and problems and i feel like medicating changes our voice from possibilities to problems from the movement of consciousness and the mind to the movement of thought and programs.
I was thinking about today how it's quite safe to flow here where I am. It's safe to be a ping pong ball and just bounce around doing whatever because whatever it is that I run into will be something safe and beautiful and of a harmless quality. And I was wondering if I take that same movement of this brain and nervous system out into society, that it doesn't really translate well and one can run into fearful things and respond quite strongly or want to retract quite strongly. And when one is moving around sort of randomly, one can start to accumulate a sense of unsafety and then feel like it's actually safer to retreat to the programs of thought and society and move around based on those. In a way, I feel like so-called psychosis is the fear of being alone outside the programs. So if there were more of us outside the programs, we wouldn't be alone outside the programs and it wouldn't be so easy to get afraid. And I was thinking about awareness and how we need to be aware in order to make an art out of our life. We can't be unaware because unawareness is defaulting to the programs and beauty is our artful self. And I feel like I can see beauty in nature and sometimes I have a hard time seeing it in humanity, but I remember being able to look at people and change people into their beautiful self. A self that I don't even feel they were aware was contained within their being. But I think looking with those kind of eyes changes people. And I wonder how to do that. I sort of had a sense of wondering about the possibilities of the human brain because in that state of so-called mania there was this in-touchness with those possibilities but not really understanding how they worked and it could actually be just the seeing possibilities and collapsing the wave function around that. But the trouble is one eventually sees scary possibilities and sees one moving towards that and it's scary so one retreats. So moving between perceiving in problems and perceiving in possibility is a dance and a flux that maybe we have to get used to until the brain is more settled in that seeing of possibilities. Because when the brain is in that state, it's actually 
creating those possibilities that it sees because we're usually seeing thoughts and a very limited reality based on that. So it's almost like the brain being comfortable with infinity. And can we glimpse people into wakefulness? And when we first get in touch with map consciousness, it feels like we're out of control because it's faster processing. And thought tries to come in and resume control. And when it can't, then we see that we're not our thoughts or there's a power beyond our thoughts. And I feel like the nerves have to release the sluggishness of the thought programs. And I talked before about random decontrivisions. I made up this exercise thing where you stick weights, ankle weights and wrist weights on and just sort of spin around and, and in a way bring space into the body. But I think map consciousness and so-called mania is a type of random decontrivisions of the universe. The universe gives us synchronicity and all these different things, but they're actually deprogramming language and gestures to see that there's other forces at play and for the opportunity to play with them. And I sort of just saw that when one has access to all those powers, oftentimes it gets used for oneself. And when one comes back, one realizes that the point of power or extra energy is to give it to others. Because if only one person has power, then it's usually used as power over others, but it can be used as energy to share with others so they have it too. So the nervous system is learning to act faster. It's like the nerves want to act a certain speed, but then thoughts are getting in the way. It's almost like how elite athletes have mental blocks. Sometimes they're overthinking things and they're actually not playing as well as they can. Like they're really close to the championship point and they play really poorly in the last part because they're overthinking things. They're thinking about the result. They're not just playing and this state is actually not about results or goals or anything like that at all. So as soon as one wants to use something for a result or a particular thing, then the power is gone. And then all of a sudden I came up with this crazy theory that thought is an illness that has infected the human nervous system. Consciousness is trying to heal us of this. It's trying to purge the programs and the thoughts and map consciousness is a deprogramming language. And just as we wouldn't listen to two songs at the same time, why would we listen to our me voice and then we can't hear the universe? Me is the noise that prevents hearing the universe. And I wonder why did our nervous system get infected with sound? 
I wonder if it's human perceptio deficiency virus. This sound, this inner sound, blocks our perception. And I was thinking about the term ESP or extrasensory perception and how in map consciousness we get in touch with quantum sensory perception, QSP. When I wrote that thing about being infected with sound viruses, I got freaked out because I had some premonition-like extrapolations from it. And then I realized that if we're infected by a language virus or a sound virus, then it's mainly a problem of how we use language or of how language uses us. But really, if this is what it's partially about, then it's hopeful. We've been taken over by the sound of our own voice. And when we see that, we can use our voice in creative ways and also to give voice to beauty. And that's not a goal. That's not something to do in the next 10 years or to attain. It's something that can be done now and can only be done now. There's no goal in beauty. We can't make beauty into a goal. And if we saw this beauty and spoke as that, we wouldn't think in terms of goals. Two nights ago, I was trying to fall asleep and I couldn't fall asleep. And then I felt like I was going into this vast emptiness. It was almost like I could feel myself looking into the unknown, the void consciousness itself. I could see the patterns and the play of light and it felt like that play of energy was the energy that created all things and it could create anything. I saw a big fish swimming, but it was like the energy pattern of the fish. And I had this sense that the fish could just easily be created from that energy because the pattern is there. And in a way, all the molecules and biology is a result of that pattern. So it might look like all this complicated evolution has to happen, but really all of that complexity rests upon the pattern when it's manifest. And then I just felt like my consciousness or consciousness was trying to leave my body and travel all over the place and and when that happens, it, it feels like it can start to feel scary. And my heart was pounding and then I was feeling pretty terrified and I, I got up and I grabbed a Seroquel and I took it. And I also put my zap strap 
beside my bed and then I unlock the door and I also grab my phone and the charger so that's sort of my little safety plan because I know if I have my phone then I can call for help if the door is unlocked someone can get in if I have my zap strap I can secure myself if I no longer feel safe And the odd thing was that as soon as I took the Seroquel, it went away. Like, it wasn't like, oh, I have to wait 10 minutes for it to kick in. It was just taking it, it stopped. And then I eventually had to take another one to fall asleep. I couldn't quite fall asleep with just one. But it was interesting because when I got up and I was scared, I could hear and feel this very faint sense of what I will just call right now the suicide program. Having this sense that being that terrified meant that I had to end my life because it was just too scary. And I feel like I've talked about this before where when the consciousness is coming back to the body it's scary so consciousness goes on this journey it's seeing all these things the formless realm and the nothingness and then I wonder if it's partly that it becomes scary so consciousness goes back to the body and one of the things that gets it to go back is taking a pill or maybe even just the gesture of taking a pill. It doesn't even have to kick in. That that pattern of getting up and taking a pill is like saying, okay, that's enough of that. And the thing too is that I'm in California and I can't afford to be hospitalized and I don't have my family here to support me and things like that. And part of me feels like since that happened, maybe I should just go home, but I'm going to see how it is. I'm going to continue to take the Seroquel. And I took two that first night, and last night I had to take three. I took one, couldn't fall asleep, took another one, couldn't fall asleep, took another one, and then I fell asleep. So today I definitely feel drugged up. It's almost like having to poison my brain cells so consciousness doesn't come in and and just take over so much. I wonder why consciousness wants to leave my body. Maybe I'm not taking good enough care of my body. Maybe I'm not putting enough care into my body. I used to put a lot of care into my body. That was one of the main things I did, and now I don't really do that at all. I'll go to the kitchen and just grab chips to eat, or ice cream, or whatever's there. I'm not really paying attention to taking care of myself, whereas before I would probably spend four hours a day just taking care of myself. And I don't know if that's true, but maybe my body needs that gesture. 
and I was reading a book last night, Wholeness and the Implicate Order by David Bohm, and it's really interesting, and it talks about our use of language and changing our use of language to a different structure so there's not all this emphasis on division and I didn't really get through that chapter yet but I tried to read it today and I can't even focus so part of me feels like when I've seen too much or my brain is too active it gets to this place where consciousness is even like leaving this body to gather more information from other places than what's immediately perceptible. And then when it starts to do that, it's almost like my brain consciousness is going too far beyond the skill set of my brain. Or the collective brain or it's gone too far outside the collective level of consciousness and it needs to come back so taking a pill isn't necessarily saying that my brain is diseased it's almost too fluid it's so fluid that it kind of goes beyond itself and and I think that some people can probably master that and maybe I will at some point but I haven't so far I haven't been able to keep going in it and I don't see maybe there's no point in, in going into it like that because the unknown is infinite and once the brain goes into the unknown it's in the infinite and the body is finite so the body would get afraid of the brain going on into infinity because if it goes too far it can almost want to stay there in infinity just traveling around choicelessly powerfully fluidly and and i've talked about the adjacent light body and i feel like one day we'll actually all live as light bodies so when we do the fluidity of consciousness and the fluidity of the body will be in alignment and it won't matter if consciousness goes off but right now since we're in these material bodies it does matter and the fact that I'm in California I have to be extra careful so it's kind of difficult because I don't have anyone to talk to and if I do, then maybe I don't want to freak people out. And forgive me if I'm talking kind of like blah, blah, blah. I feel like I can't really enunciate things properly. My mouth is like slow. It's slowed down. My whole physiology is poisoned and slowed down. And I'm okay with that. 
think my whole being just needs to rest. And so I also talk to the people from Hardy Nutritionals, and they sell a micronutrient supplement that's good for people who have these kind of concerns and oftentimes people can come off their medication and I'm not planning to come off my medication on purpose but I will likely start that supplement somewhat because it might actually help with some of these things I'm experiencing I feel like if it helps somebody with, say, so-called psychosis, then it's giving the brain the right nutrition to not have consciousness come in and push the brain into altered state experiences. And it might be actually the right nutrition for perception to be able to just perceive and not be flung into the whims of those perceptions. And I wonder about this because I think there's actually something to the fact that so many people get thrust into this process of consciousness animating us and sort of being these calling birds, calling out to the fact that something's wrong with society structure and that's why people are going into these other states of consciousness and I remember a quote I think her name was Emily Levine and it was in her TED talk about trickster and I want to go back to it actually because she talked about something like At the end of her talk, she said something like, don't go too far into beauty because you have to be able to meet your audience. And I feel like my brain has just gone too far into beauty. It's too beautiful here. And my brain does this when it's starting to thrive. And so in a way, since society's not designed for thriving, it the very fabric of the brain needs to be poisoned in order to sort of come back down to the resonance of what's really there collectively because as Krishnamurti says that I am the world and the world is me and I do sense this very strongly sometimes I don't I don't know I just I really want to be able to stay here to go to emotional CPR in early April. If I can get to that point, at least, that would be great. But I do want to stay here longer. But I do have to be so careful. And if I end up going back early, I just... I just don't know what to do with myself because... If this little blip was kind of a bit of a so-called crisis, that's only two months. I thought I would have easily five months at least without a sign of anything, especially being in such a beautiful place. So to have it come on after two months in this beautiful place, 
is kind of freaky. And now I'm carrying my zap strap and my Seroquel with me everywhere I go. And my phone and my charger just to actually be extra safe. And it seems to really help and work. Like as soon as I have those items, I just feel like I can't hurt myself. So it's almost like the brain is scared back to the body or the mind is scared back to the body and then part of it is that it's scary but I also feel safe. So I'm going to keep taking the Seroquel every day for at least a week, maybe two, like I did before. But the difference is this time it's after two months. But it wasn't a full-blown crisis. Like, it wasn't like last time. It was maybe, like, before last time I had a little tiny so-called panic attack. And I took out Seroquel and I didn't need it. And I kept not taking it for a couple of weeks. And then eventually I needed to take it and go through a full crisis. So I'm wondering if this time I did the thing that I keep saying to myself I mean to do, which is take it at the first sign instead of being like, okay, I'll ride out this wave. I'll ride out this wave and then not taking it. So this time being in the scenario that I'm in where I can't risk going into a full-blown crisis, I took it sooner. So maybe I'll have to take it for two weeks every two months or something, I don't know, but it just makes me slow and not able to read and and makes it harder to do some of the tasks that I need to do. But I just really feel like I do need that psychological safety too just come off these meds and and be healthy and I just really wish there was a supportive community for that and there are but it's just few and far between so I might lay here and make some videos and it doesn't require very much reading it's just talking but I remember last time not having the urge to make videos at all so that might happen again but I could at least catch up on some of the things that I've written and I was even thinking today about how these videos are good in a way because one day I could just die. I could just kill myself and it could just be over. And at least by creating this daily without waiting to accumulate some kind of special protocol or how-to, which I don't really think is possible, then it's just sort of an acknowledgement of the moment and and maybe putting some of that language out there 
relanguaging and playing with language and That's the thing with a crazy wise town hall. They're saying, how should we frame this instead of the mental illness paradigm? And how do you frame infinity? We're trying to frame something that can't be framed. It's this process that no words can ever capture. It's a process of life. I'll talk more about that later. So yeah, two weeks of dullness. But I'm starting to see that I just have to poison myself back. Poison my brain so it can't see so much, so it can't process so much information so it doesn't get lost in so much beauty. It's almost like learning to ride a horse and taking Seroquel, it's like pulling on the reins, like, whoa, slow down. I can't go that fast. Again, it's not so much about anything. It's not about something. It's not speaking about mental illness or anything, or speaking about spiritual emergency. It's speaking as the spirit. So we're trying to speak about the spiritual emergency or, or mental illness, but it's more a matter of what we're speaking as. Are we speaking as human beings? Or are we speaking as human beings? The emergence process itself is to disintegrate the me. So if we speak about the me, we're actually reinforcing the me. We need to speak as that which we experienced but as experience now, each moment. So, so we could look back and, and feel how we spoke before, feel the quality of where we were speaking from. We were speaking from our experiences in the moment. And so it's not about thinking about those experiences, it's about continuing to speak as the moment. And you can't frame that. There's no frame for that. And so all of this dialogue I've had with myself, it's not really a me speaking and how I feel it. through the emergence process, we emerge into being just a human being, perceiving in the moment, free of stories. So no story can tell adequately anything about 
that place in us where we speak from. Really, it's about speaking the story of the moment or the perception of the moment, each moment, not stories about that. There's no that there. I don't know if I'm making any sense. And I am curious about this using language differently thing that David Bohm's going to talk about in his book. I feel like just speaking as the moment is using language differently. Whether we use old ways of structuring sentences or not, it's just a different quality of where the words are coming from. Because just to learn different ways of speaking, it will actually change consciousness eventually too. Because it's changing the perspective and how we see by saying I have no idea again the forgetfulness is interesting and that's part of being scared back into regular consciousness and taking drugs to feel that taking medication I mean it's like taking medication to feel again separate but interestingly enough the other end is that consciousness tries to separate itself from the brain and leave the body I'd love to be able to be supported to just not medicate myself during that and see what happens. As I can see, I'm kind of tired. Taking those three Seroquel last night was a bit much. But the conversation must go on. It's interesting because I look at the stuff I've written down and with the seracle in my body it just doesn't look very interesting. I was listening to the Crazy Wise town hall meeting online today and Gabor Mate was talking about how Trauma and childhood issues lead to mental health problems. And I was thinking about how if there is trauma in childhood, it pushes a person off their original trajectory of how they would develop in an ideal scenario. Most people don't experience an ideal scenario. Who knows what that even is? And I've talked about the original trajectory, which is sort of like the adjacent light body. And I feel that map consciousness is a process that's attempting to put us back in touch 
with our original trajectory. So in that way, it's a healing process because we're healing towards our original trajectory. And in a way, the original trajectory is a non-trajectory as it's a fluidity in which we're not adjusting ourselves based on our past traumas. When we have traumas, then we have a rigidity in that we're reacting to elements of the present as if they were the past because we see that they could lead to things that happened before. And in a way, the meds make thoughts better or worse. Really what the problem is, is thought. But we don't question thought itself. We're just hoping to make them more bearable. So the medications, in a way, work on thought. It changes our thoughts, and a lot of times the hope is to limit them down to a very narrow nature so we're not thinking about things beyond the scope of what society is designed to be a function of. And in a way, society has its meanings of success and growth and progress and things. So if we start getting into this meaning-making state in our brain where we're making meanings outside the meanings of society, then it's not really functional within the supposed functions of society. But in a way, this process is a function of the brain that gets us functioning in the sphere of meaning, especially when the meanings of society right now together are leading us as a species towards destruction and of the planet too. And Robert Whitaker mentioned that psychosis is increased dopamine or that that happens in psychosis. Not saying that that's necessarily a brain disease, but what I was thinking about in terms of that is that I feel we're all addicted to dopamine and when we go into map consciousness we actually decouple from the dopamine circuits temporarily and we experience a different world not based on reward and punishment. But when the brain has gone too far or too long in that state, the dopamine has to ramp up extra high in order to sort of rein consciousness back into its regular sphere. So to me, it's like this hyper dopamine net just trying to recapture consciousness into the limited sphere of society. And it's actually scary because being very expansive and coming back to a very limited sphere is, is scary. And somebody asked the question, well, what kind of thinking should we have around mental health struggles? And I feel that having any kind of thinking around it is a barrier because those would be beliefs and, and those expanded states are meaning-making states. Of course, if perception is expanded beyond the regular meanings and seeings of society, it's going to feel meaningful. And so we're going to create new meanings but to believe any of those meanings 
is a bit of an error because the process is kind of infinite. So if one clings to anything, then it's actually reducing the infinite process. So really it's to see that we're infinite processors of infinity and we can have lots of different experiences and if we don't cling to them, then it can be a never-ending process. But to say, oh, this process that initiates meaning-making, we have to put some kind of framework around it in a way that is trying to limit this unlimited process, this unlimited perception, this unlimited voice. If one is in touch with that infinity and one can speak as infinity, one wouldn't necessarily need to put a framework on it. And that's sort of what we've done, even by believing that we're these separate me entities. We've put a limit on our infinite seeing by thinking of ourselves in terms of this accumulated psychological knowledge about ourselves. And those images are what actually keeps us from seeing and speaking infinitely. Beliefs and frameworks are words, and words can never really capture that infinite process by which those words are created when one is in that meaning-making state. And they were asking about the new narrative, and I think the new narrative is constant narration without the narrator. Who is this narrator? The narrator is one that wants to form this consistent story about something to make something consistent but the whole process of map consciousness shows we're not this consistent entity we are moving fluxing flowing and then to come back and then say well i need to define that somehow that prevents going into the undefined state so in a way it's an undefined narrator or narration that happens when there's no narrator there. It's a narration of the moment. And in that way, we're culturing the language of the moment by trying to create frameworks for this process. We're framing the very process of ourselves. And I was thinking about how the chemistry in the brain is partially due to the words in the brain. So we, if we have words of me this and me that and I want this and I want that and referencing everything to this me image entity, those resonances, those sounds are going to be producing the chemistry. So by speaking as the me, we create dopamine, serotonin and different things like that in the brain and partly I think that the brain is tired of itself it's tired of the me it's tired of this image approximation of the total that isn't even close to approximating the whole the brain wants to be whole so the me and I want this and I want that reward and punishment creates dopamine, but that's actually sound, language, words. 
and then when one says, oh yay, I got my reward, then one gets the dopamine. So the dopamine is actually part of the me and the language we're speaking in our head. So I think it's important to realize it's a new language of not speaking in terms of the me. So I wonder what is the language that creates DMT and the so-called flow molecules. Because when people are in flow, they usually aren't thinking because often they're doing some kind of extreme sport, which if they're thinking, that's going to mess up the flow. But is there a language that one can speak where one isn't thinking? One's not preforming their words. Can one speak as the moment? And then if one is doing that, just with the way that language is being created in the brain, it could change the biochemistry of the brain. So if I want a cookie and then, oh yeah, I got my cookie, creates dopamine. And it can be anything. Each person has something different they're looking for. And it's just words in their head that they're looking to satisfy. So when there's perception and there's no me and no ego. And then Gabor Mate said something about how I feel about myself. And I was thinking, who is this I that's feeling something about itself? And I was thinking about I feel, just the words I feel. And when I was thinking about the words I feel, I sort of had this sense that as I say I feel X, well, there's the feeling molecule X, but the I and the feel and the X are all the same thing. So if I say I feel sad, now I just sort of imagine that there's this sadness molecule and it's actually in front of my eyes and it is the I and it's blocking my perception. So if I just imagine that when I say I feel sad, the sadness molecule flows over my eye and blocks and actually creates the sadness so I see the world as sad. I'm seeing through my sadness molecules. But what I actually sort of saw, and I have no idea if this is true, but when I say I feel sad, there's the sadness molecule and overlapping in it and implicit in the information of that sadness molecule are the words I feel sad. So I feel sad is the sadness molecule. And that sadness molecule is is the DNA, is from the DNA, is, is created from the codes of the DNA. So in a way, I feel sad is actually coded in the DNA. And when I say I feel sad, it's also an image, whatever it is that is making me feel sad is part of that sadness molecule. So the molecule of I feel sad is written in the DNA and the words I feel sad as well as the image. So it's all sort of holographically encoded together in this I feel sad. But what I'm saying is the I that feels sad is that biochemistry. So the words we say I feel sad are activating the DNA to create the sad emotion molecule and the molecule of the emotion also 
when we think the thing that's making us feel sad, that image, it's also going in and fluxing through this feeling of sadness. So it's all this one thing. There's no I or me that feels sad. There's this arising of the molecule, the DNA being written to encode that protein of sadness, as well as the words I feel sad, as well as the image. And to me, this in a way shows that when I say I feel sad, it just colors the world as I feel sad, as there's this I feeling sad. But really, there's just the world. There's no I there feeling sad except for our sadness molecules, which we're actually just addicted to. So what I'm seeing is that embedded in the way we use language in our brain is what's creating these biochemical states. But we are the biochemical states. The I, the me, is the biochemical state. So there's no me apart from our emotions and our thoughts. And we're mainly just addicted to them. So we're addicted to the self. We're addicted to the me and to the sense of being separate from reality. Because in a way, if we felt our connectedness to it, we'd actually have to do something. We wouldn't be able to sit on our butts and feel sorry for ourselves. And there's no self to feel sorry for. It's all a trick of words, of how we use words. And again, they're in our brain being used against us and creating the us, creating the me. So in a way, the me, the I, is just a construct of our language. So it's likely not very clear what I'm saying, and I haven't really thought that much about it, but what I'm saying is when I say I feel, there is no I that feels. But by actually creating this sentence saying I feel, then it makes it seem like there's an I, a person that's feeling it. So I guess this is probably what the book Wholeness and the Implicate Order is going to talk about, is that to say I feel is an illusion, but if I say there is a feeling, or feeling sad, but not that there's this I that's feeling sad, or a feeling of sadness. Saying a feeling of sadness in this body. And in a way, there's a different sense to that than saying, I feel. When we say, I feel, it's, we take it so seriously and we take it like there's this permanent thing. But if I say there's a feeling of sadness, well, the next moment there could be a feeling of ha happiness. So the more we say, I feel sad, the more we reinforce the I. We say I, I, I all day long, and that's just reinforcing the I, whereas, and it's actually restricting the eyes, like the actual physical eyes. What we see is limited because of saying I, this, I, that, and being attached to this entity and its memories inside that isn't really there. And so the biomolecule 
is the blinder. And the trouble with the eye too is that when I say I feel sad, it accumulates all the images of sadness over time to the point where it's built up. Whereas if one spoke of sadness, not in terms of this I that feels sad, then there's no accumulation. Or even to say my eyes see sadness, right now the world looks sad, but not that I am sad. If I were to say I see sadness, it opens up a bit more of a conversation as to why one is seeing with the molecules of sadness blocking actual vision. I feel like the DNA and the molecule of emotion and the image and the word vibrations, they all activate each other. And they're all holographically interwoven. And that's the thing that prevents clear perception. And the stories are tied to the molecules holographically. And when we emote in those ways with those stories, it actually rewrites our DNA as well. It's rewritten our DNA to perceive these holograms, this holographic interference. And then the hologram tied to the emotional molecule is what picks those bits out of reality that's going to give one that hit of those emotional molecules. And it reactivates the past. And we're addicted to how we think and see the world. And that's all tied to the eye, to this supposed fixed observer. But when one is in the state of insight, there's no fixed observer. One is just harvesting perceptions and meanings as measures and that's how we measure the world is with insight which is a creative thing and David Bohm talks about measure in his book and it was really fascinating how he put it maybe I'll talk about that later so we see the world as we feel about it but really it's how we feel about ourselves and I guess that's what Gabor Mate said and in a way, perception is seeing the world as insight, having insight into the world, and not having feelings about how the world makes me feel. That separates me from the world. So in a way, emotions are our way of keeping ourselves separate from the world. I feel like map consciousness is an impersonal process. Consciousness tries to come in and crowd out thought in place for perception and meaning-making. 
I feel like by taking Seroquel, I'm poisoning my brain. So consciousness can't come in and crowd out the body in a way. I feel like consciousness is super powerful and it's saying that there's a reality where we don't need bodies. There are light bodies, but we're not quite ready for that yet. And Will Hall made a statement about placebo and expectation as psychoactive substances because he was talking about drugs being psychoactive substances and it doesn't mean that a person necessarily has a mental illness because any psychoactive substance will have an effect on anybody. So, but he said placebo and expectation is a psychoactive substance. And I was thinking about that in terms of if I expect something, it's a certain biochemical state that is going to create that change in the brain to be receptive to healing. But I was thinking about care as a psychoactive substance and listening as a psychoactive substance. Can we be psychoactive substances for each other? And Will Hall talks about the harm reduction approach to coming off psych drugs. And I was thinking, can we take a harm reduction approach to the mental illness story? So to just decouple from that story 100% cold turkey isn't necessarily helpful. Like I would like to do that and just say, oh, I don't believe in the system. I'm not going to take any of these drugs. But at the same time, my conversation with myself has been reducing the harm of that story and not necessarily believing that I have this defective brain, but also seeing that that story is still a part of my life and I do have to make use of elements that go along with that story, but I can still reframe it. I can say, by taking a Seroquel, I'm just poisoning my brain so consciousness can't come in and do such powerful things through my brain when I'm not really ready to act towards that yet. So it's a way of gearing down in consciousness. Whereas I could think, oh, that means I'm really mentally ill and I need to go home when I see it as my brain is just powerful in a way. It's powerful beyond this ego self that I try to think that I am on a daily basis for convenient and functionality's sake. So what my brain is trying to do is something that is probably not considered functional within society's framework, but it's doing something. And I don't know what that is. And obviously there's things that the brain can do that are outside whatever the framework of constructed cultured society is and I don't mean cultured as in that's a good thing but I just mean the way things have progressed for many many years of humanity and those are all false frameworks and the brain is a living thing and it's trying to 
move into this living dimension and being in a beautiful place it actually is seeming like it is trying to go with that opportunity to go further into beauty and further into non-locality and all these things that I don't even know what it's trying to do but all I know is me as my ego self can say hey I'm going to take a Seroquel because I don't know what you're trying to do brain but I know what I can do to slow you down from whatever it is you're trying to do because we got lots of time we can go about this slowly so where does the story of mental illness help and where does it harm and how can I reduce that harm I already know for sure that this process of reframing and renaming and playing around with meanings and and things has been helpful because I don't see myself as mentally ill. Really part of the point is there's no self there to be mentally ill. It's just a bunch of thoughts and programs and they have kind of a life of their own sometimes and that's part of it because we think there's this me controlling the programs, but as soon as the programs get out of control, we see there is no me there controlling the programs. And any level of supposed control is is minimal. And when that minimal amount of control gets released, it is kind of a scary process, but one can still induce and impose some level of control by taking medications which probably just poison the brain into not growing so fast beyond the limits of society because if the brain grows beyond the limits of society the body is going to act differently it's going to behave in different ways so it's like learning a dance And I wonder if we can fill the airwaves with the sounds of perception. I'm not talking about me, but perception. And invite people to use words and language in a different way. And I do feel with taking the Seroquel that it's sort of like putting poison in my brain so a lot of it dies. And, and that's okay because my brain grows like weeds. The neurons grow like weeds, so whatever I killed off is just going to grow back. So it's almost a way to control neuroplasticity, to control the hyper-perception, to have tranquil eyes, to be tranquilized and just sort of lay there for a while and let the brain die back because just like grass it's going to grow again and and getting comfortable with the fact that the brain is going to grow back and it's going to be just fine is is good
it's almost really just seeing this neuroplasticity and how powerful the brain is and how one can let it die back and it just grows back. It almost feels like the brain gets to the end of how far it can perceive at this time and then the body has this reaction and gets scared because the brain knows that it's time to die. And so I take Seroquel and that slows down the brain and, and lets it die back. And it's just a different game. It's like a game of the brain growing as much as it can and then having to die back as opposed to just having this brain that's very stagnant and static throughout one's entire life. It's almost like consciousness has a different rhythm and it gets to the furthest reaches it can in, in the human brain at that time and then it dies. And the body reacts like the body's dying, but it's not. It's just consciousness dying back. And I think the medication sort of helps that dying back into thought and dying back into the level of the me again process. And I wrote down that the speed of consciousness is faster than the speed of thought. Thought is a movement in the brain cells of stored up images, probably in the DNA and in the molecules of emotion and the sounds. It probably moves at the speed of sound, whereas consciousness moves at the speed of light or maybe even faster. And because one is perceiving light and making sound out of it, the light and the sound that that light makes grows the brain and it can get to the upper limits quite quickly. I actually feel that the brain needs wheeze other people to ground it in that growth process. It's just like how certain kinds of plants do better when there's lots of them around. And I took some notes on David Bohm's book, Wholeness in the Implicate Order. And he was saying that a fragmentary self worldview is fostered and transmitted by the way we use language. And I feel like that is the way the ego thought uses language, the me. Sound in our own voice turned against ourself, creating a self, creating the molecules of the me with our language. And I feel like there's a non-fragmentary self trying to foster and transmit new worldviews, which is if an insight springs up, that's a whole worldview right there. And there's got to be some kind of biochemistry of insight. So now the biochemistry, the biomolecule of insight encodes the perception. And I'm wondering if 
in that molecule of insight and in the insight and the feeling and the sense of it itself, it's encoded in the actual words of the insight. So when somebody says an insight, it might sound like a thought, but if it's an actual insight and someone says it, it has the energy of insight. And if somebody hears the insight, they're absorbing the energy of insight, even if they just think they're absorbing English or a thought or somebody's statement. And this is a new way of using language. And we might not even have to really change the structure of language we use. It's more the quality of the seer and the perceiver and what they say. And they could maybe almost say anything and it doesn't really matter. And though it's likely that the insight would have to get past the wall of thoughts of other people so they have to listen non-judgmentally because the judgment is going to chop up the insight into little bits and and classify it and not and therefore not listen to the insight and it's not whole and so it's translated into the past and into knowledge and so each new insight becomes a worldview as opposed to I feel XYZ being the worldview and those are very few worldviews whereas insights are unlimited so there's no I there it's just insight and whatever insight says is the worldview of the insight at the time it's something that one saw it's something that one had an insight into and that seeing relationship and extrapolating and David Bohm said something about to clarify what is meant by the relationship between the content of thought and the process of thinking which produces this content. And that's a pretty fascinating distinction. And I wrote down, it's a different process that produces the content of insight. So his statement alone is really fascinating when you really think about it. But then I was extrapolating that to how perception and insight produces different content than thought. So it's a different process. We go from thought processors to perception processors. And that process of perception creates different sound. It doesn't create the in sound of thought that is bouncing around for forever and that happens when one identifies with what one says so if I was to identify with some of the things that I say they'd be bouncing around my head like I think this and I think that blah 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 and waiting to be used as preformed sentences whereas if I just say an insight and it's gone then the next one is there and that that space and that freedom is what is needed for this unending process of insight as opposed to the process of thought. So we still produce sound, we still, it seems very much the same, like you can't really, you can't really tell the difference. And the thing is though, when one first gets acquainted with that state of making new sound, making new meaning, speaking as the moment, 
it seems weird to people, especially people that know that person. And then it's said to be a mental illness when really it's just a reversal of sound and perception of like looking at internal images and sounds to looking at the outside and producing sounds of the moment. And at first it is, yes, indeed confusing, but after a while, one wouldn't be able to tell the difference of a person who speaks based on thought and speaks based on insight. So that's the difference. It produces different content and in a way this self-dialogue is content of insight. So when consciousness flows through the perceptual apparatus and is not impeded by thought, then different sound is created. And I wonder if there is no real need to change the structure of the English language. I'm going to read that chapter of David Bohm's book next when I can, but it seems that my tranquil eyes might not be able to read it for a number of days until I'm not taking Seroquel, which again is just preventing information overload. My brain can't take in any more information. Because the thing is, with the process of perception, it's infinite. So it seems like the brain can only go along picking up information for so long. And maybe that's why this happened quicker this time. It's only been two months. I thought I would have six but I've been out and about and perceiving beauty and doing a lot and my brain could have reached its capacity faster. And David Bohm gave a quote by Protagoras and he said, man is the measure of all things. And then I wonder, well, what am I measuring? I think perception measures beauty and speaks the truth of the moment, whereas thought is a measure of the me and accumulated thoughts. So man is a measure of movement and beauty, measuring movement, gestures. And I think we are the measure in a way. And that relates to say somebody going in distress and, and seeing a situation and running away from it because they're measuring that it's not safe and I think people who get in touch with the sensitivity of measuring as perception, measuring the moment, speaking as the moment, meaning, they actually do accumulate information over a certain period of time and actually sort of get spent and then appear as though they're not well and that's a measure of society that's a measure of what we've created that we can't move fluidly and sensitively in this world without being crushed by it and dr david Bohm wrote measure is a form of insight demonstrated by the clarity of perception and harmony 
of action to which it leads. So insight is a measure of perception, how insightful one is. And he said measure is an insight created by man. So we tend to measure the world with our thoughts. And those have been programmed, whereas if we are deprogrammed, we measure with insight. And we need insight into our measures, like, say, success. We have all these measures in the world that we go by that are pre-programmed and we're not able to use our own perceptual measuring device. And the words we speak, in a way, are measure. They're our measure of reality. And David Ball mentioned that we use techniques to get to the immeasurable, say, meditation. And then I had an insight that said, perception is a technique of the immeasurable. So when you're in touch with the immeasurable, you don't need a technique to get to the immeasurable. But perception is a technique of the immeasurable to put some kind of measure to its immeasurability. The immeasurable sees through us, and what we say is a measure of the immeasurable, of if we're in touch with that, or are we in just in touch with our thought structures? And then David Baum said something about trying to reach the immeasurable. And a lot of times when I see something new by what somebody writes, it's not even related to what they're actually talking about. It's more the language. It gives me a hint of something. So the hint I got from that was, so he said, try to reach the immeasurable. And then I had the insight that we are that by which the immeasurable reaches out to itself as other humans and life forms. It's the process of life transforming itself, which is infinite. So we can try to reach the immeasurable, or we can reach out as the immeasurable. And David Bohm, in his book, Wholeness in the Implicate Order, talked about something to do with artwork. And I was thinking about how Mine is art words. And instead of a work of art, it's a work of words. Because really, it's all to do with language and how we use language or how it's using us. So the products of our measure are our insights. So in a way, our brain has this algorithm of thought, of measuring with thought, or measuring as insight. It wouldn't even be measuring with insight. It would be seeing insights and creating new sounds. It just seems like the words we speak are really important and not in terms of programs, but whatever is outside that. And I wrote down that a thought as words contains within it the image 
So the words and the image arise together. And I feel like it's possible within a perception or an insight, it contains the entire perception and insight. So if I saw some kind of relationship between something that I was looking at and it came in the form of a sentence of words and I said those words, in those words contains the whole perception encoded in it subtly. It's almost like a hologram of deprogramming, whereas the thought is a hologram of programming. It's sort of like the negation of programming. If, so, if someone hears an insight, I have no idea. So thought consciousness is like speaking about XYZ. And insight consciousness is speaking as perception, as the mind. The mind uses the brain to speak instead of thought using the brain to speak. There is a virtual meality in the brain and I feel like hearing an insight and really hearing it erases some of the virtual meality. And it seems that thought was needed to create things, but then when we turn those creations into some kind of commerce and economy, then somebody has to own these things. So there has to be a me there to own these things. So there's some kind of ownership in this whole me and really we've been sort of bought and sold. And David Bohm mentioned something about language function and that just made me think of we're all suffering from language dysfunction. There's nobody that has a mental illness. We're just all suffering from language dysfunction. We've been using language to create me. And then a separate me, when there is no such thing, is going to create suffering. And the suffering is because we're separate. But we've created that with our language. So this next part was key. David Bohm said something about to take a step in what might be an unending experimentation with language and with thought. This is so huge because in a way the self-dialogue is an experimentation with language, talking to oneself in different ways about this particular thing and I have talked about language along the way. And he also said an experimentation with language as a normal function of the individual and society. So part of my experiment is speaking as the moment and speaking as insight. And even where I am now, there's seemingly some resistance to that way of speaking. People want to speak as me. It almost feels like 
when this happens and I have to like take meds or something, then I start to speak the language of me more so again, like, oh, I am tired and I'm not feeling the greatest. So in a way, it's almost like the body takes a hit in order for the person to be like, oh yeah, there is this me there that needs this and that and has certain needs. But yeah, to take a step in what might be an unending experimentation with language. Because we don't question the language we're using. And I remember when I was in the psych ward one time, people were around me saying stuff and everything people said sounded painful. Like it, they were just saying benign stuff, but every word just had this awful feeling in it. And I just take that as a sense of the way we use language and the energy behind it. And then he said, the ordinary mode of language doesn't properly call attention to its own function, which is fragmentation, so that the divisions in the language structure are then projected as if they were fragments, corresponding to actual breaks in what is. That is so profound. And I wrote, this is how the me is created, because we speak about the me and as the me when there is no me. Our language structure creates the me, the subject, which is an illusion of language, an optical illusion of language. Just speak as perception, as Gaia, as the remedy. One can't bring order to the me as it is an illusion of language. And it also gives the illusion of a controller. We are controlled by our images, thoughts, and language. And again, this optical illusion of language. So I say, I feel, and that creates this feeling molecule, and that changes how I see the world based on a feeling that I call I feel. But that whole process is not real. It fragments us from the actual totality of what is. So our language creates the me. It's in the structure of our language, which is sound. And those sounds of I this and I that make us feel like there is an I. And there are no subjects, there are just objects. And these objects can be instruments of Gaia, speaking as Gaia. And David Bohm says, give attention to the very language that is being used from moment to moment in the inquiry into the function of language itself. And I feel like this could be the next bit of investigation is the use of language itself. I'm curious about what David Bohm has to say about it because he's quite the genius. I'm using today as
as a catch-up video day, even though I'm kind of groggy. But the good thing about being groggy is that I won't have too many more extra things that I want to say. I'll just sort of get through what it is that I already wrote down, even though it's in a less than energetic way. And I think I mentioned I did order the Hardy Nutritional Supplement that has nutrition for the brain, and I'm hoping it'll help me with some of these extracurricular activities going on in my mind, especially when I try to go to sleep at night. My body wants to go to sleep and consciousness wants to go swimming in the ocean, apparently. I saw some beautiful fish and stuff and I really just wanted to go to sleep. So I will be taking that because even though it might somewhat force me to reduce my medications, it doesn't seem like the medications are really keeping this in check right now, unless I take extra. So I did do that. And also another thing I've been doing a little bit is reading some of the old things I wrote six years ago when all this first started. And oddly enough, so much of what I wrote is what I'm saying now, or related to what I'm saying now, so it kind of shows me that Whatever I was seeing back then, or however I was seeing, is the same. There's even stuff in there that's kind of premonitory when I consider what has happened since. So it's kind of neat to read through some of it. And I've been meaning to read this bit of Krishnamurti's talk and it's a talk he gave in 1956 and it really makes me feel like what he speaks of is very similar to the process of map consciousness or whatever you want to call it he says there is a reality please listen there is a reality which coming upon the mind transforms it you don't have to do a thing. It operates. It functions. It has a being of its own. But the mind must feel it, must know it, and not speculate, not have all kinds of ideas about it. A mind that is seeking it will never find it. But there is that state, unquestionably. In saying this, I am not speculating, nor am I saying it as an experience of yesterday. It is so. There is that state, and if you have it, you will find everything is possible, because that is creation, that is love, that is compassion. But you cannot come to it through any means, through any book, through any guru or organization. Do please realize that you cannot come to it through any means. No meditation will lead you to it. When you realize that no sanctions, no patterns of behavior, no guru, no book, no organization, no authority can lead you to that state, you have already got it. Then you will find that the mind is merely an instrument of that creation. 
and it is that creation operating through the mind that will bring about a totally different world, not the planned world of the politician or the religious social reformer, because that creation is its own reality, its own eternity. Just think about that first sentence. There is a reality which coming upon the mind transforms it. You don't have to do a thing. It operates. It functions. It has a being of its own. Now, to me, that sounds a little bit like being touched by what is thought of to be called mania. Something that touches the mind that operates and has a being of its own. And when it's there, we don't question it. And I think part of the trouble is that when that is operating, one is different from one's usual self. And people start to question, and then that being gets transformed into something that it's not because of what happens to it. And now I'm going to talk about some of my notes in my computer because I'm sitting here in my room. And I might just go through them kind of fast just to say them. When the noise of the nervous system is quiet, there is choiceless awareness. The noise is choice. The interference pattern of noise moves us out of contact with reality. Then we are in contact with the mind and it uses the brain to create itself. That one's actually related to the quote I read by Krishnamurti. And we talk so much about frameworks, needing a framework for this or that or some kind of system. But when we really think about it, our only framework is our body. When we remove everything else, we have just our body, and that's really what needs to be the measure of things for us. And in a way, if we're having all these thoughts in our head, we're actually out of alignment with something. It's a warning signal. And I feel like the sound of our voice moves us out of touch with actual reality. And or the sound of our voice is related to emotions, and emotions are matter and in a way, I feel like the sound of our voice creates the matter of emotions, which creates the matter of our body. If we didn't have emotions to separate us by way of me this and me that, then perhaps we would just be consciousness disembodied. So in a way, maybe we came here to have this experience of me and trying to stop the me. Maybe that's the problem. That's actually totally opposite of everything I've been saying all along. So I wonder if I can play the role of me better and stronger to keep myself embodied. Because maybe if the me is over, then the game here in physical reality is over. And there's something about knowing beyond cognition, knowing with all the senses. And when we're in touch with all the senses, we can touch more of reality. So we might be able to sense what it's like to be a blade of grass by looking at it. 
And by sensing that, we might say, I am the blade of grass, which makes us sound crazy. But really, it's just I'm sensing what it might be like to be a blade of grass, which is being able to empathize with anything, which is really just having the brain able to make that calculation and be able to measure what it is like to be that blade of grass. Can we allow anything to touch our nervous system? And when there's no me there blocking it, no sound in our nervous system, it can sense the relationship between our nervous system and the blade of grass. And that's complete sanity, because if we can sense that, we're not going to think that grass is evil and we need to destroy all the grass. And I wrote down that sound coming out of the nervous system produces cortisol. I think when consciousness tries to leave the body, it produces cortisol. So the body responds in order to call consciousness back to the body. So in a way, consciousness leaving the body could be a type of fishing or harvesting. And then when it comes back, if there was no stress response, it might just keep going. And I feel like when one is in touch with the mind, the feedback is in relationship with others. So there'll be a living response. So instead of having to think, oh, I wonder what happened there. Did they think this or did they think that? One is just silent and waits for the living response if there is one. And the feedback is immediate in reality instead of in abstractions in our mind. And I wonder if this is synchronicity, just synchronizing with life and the feedback of life. And so one can get in tune with what life wants and what the totality wants. And synchronizing implies oneness and it's challenging to get into that oneness because one is bumping into people in dual consciousness. Not many people are acting out of oneness. I feel like in other states of consciousness, what we look at can feel like what we're doing because perception is action and it's choiceless awareness. So what we're aware of is kind of what we're doing. And what happens for people in cardiac arrest is largely determined on the people around them. So if somebody goes into cardiac arrest and people just think they're doing a performance to play dead, then nobody's going to do anything. But if they realize that a person is having a problem, they'll call for help. I feel like people who go into map consciousness go into non-duality arrest or ego arrest. All of a sudden, the ego is arrested. And what happens to the person, because they're sort of helpless without the ego as the actor, it largely depends on people around them. And people in duality try to bring the person back to duality. And flow is choiceless awareness. When one is falling in gravity, there's no time to make a choice based on thought. 
so a different sense takes over the body falling in gravity and I feel like map consciousness is almost like the ego falling in consciousness there's no time for it to act and so the mind takes over I feel like the force of consciousness or the field of consciousness could be like the field of gravity just like if we're taking a step down a mountain we'll be animated in a certain way because of gravity we just lift our leg and we fall and step in gravity so if we're in the consciousness of love in that field of consciousness and we take a step we'll be animated as love with different gestures than if we take a step in the field of consciousness of hate so the field of consciousness helps to animate us just like the field of gravity would I feel like the brain is starving for the sounds of seeing like when we see something beautiful and we go ah that's a sound of actually seeing something but usually we're lost in the sounds of our own personal conflicts and the me is conflict the me is programmed to be in conflict just by virtue of separating itself from that which it's not separate from from life from the field of life and the flow state is the algorithm of life and they sell it back to us after it's been written over by the programs of education we probably sit in class over 10,000 hours and it says it takes 10,000 hours to be really expert skilled at something well we become expert skilled at what it is they're educating us to see and how we're educated to be in the world which is over the algorithm of life so after we're thoroughly programmed then all these concepts like spirituality and actualization and flow and meditation are all sold to us and there's the energy of living and life and the energy of thought wastes energy from the energy of life and so thought is a limiter I wonder if the map consciousness muscle is getting used to carrying complexity in a way thought limits the complexity of life it limits it down just to the little me and then one doesn't really consider things beyond that limited sphere but when one starts to really perceive and have insight then that has to be something outside the limited me self map consciousness is a complexity algorithm and it's seeing complexity seeing all the complexity that's out there and seeing the beauty of it and the place of all of it and if we see the beauty in the place of all of it we don't divide it up into little bits for our own use to the point where the complexity is going to be destroyed because our eyes can still see that the complexity is being destroyed and when the human brain starts to get to a point where it's destroyed too much complexity then nature which we're a part of 
starts to destroy the complexity of the human brain. And it's almost like we're devolving. We're devolving by lack of our own vision and insight. We need to see the complexity and the celebration of it. I want to restore the vision of labeled people. Visionaries. I feel like we become allergic to thought. We become allergic to me. And maybe that's why the volume gets turned up on voices is that it's an attack of the me on the me, but really there is no me there, but it's just becoming allergic to the me. Usually we have a me and it seems like this healthy me, but it's almost like this inflammatory me reaction that happens. Inflammatory sound, it's becoming inflamed. The universe is having an autoimmune reaction to thought, to the me, to the ego, and it can send out any vibes that our brain will pick up on, any programs. I feel like autistic brains might be inflamed by thought, so they're going along just fine, and once they hit that age where they're supposed to absorb thoughts and words and language, their brain is allergic to them. The new currency is perception, action, and beauty. I wonder if dopamine is the genetic switch. The me. Something's going wrong with the dopamine system. And dopamine is related to language, to I want. But in a way, if the brain is becoming allergic to this idea of an I, of a me, of a separate entity, I wonder if there was a different way for some of these children to be raised instead of in thought but in just a field of love, unconditional love and openness and space. And that which sees through our eyes in the background no matter what we're projecting in the foreground is beauty itself. And I feel like the me is cis-consciousness. It's a contraction of consciousness. It contracts consciousness like muscles contract. It contracts the brain cells. I feel like the me as dopamine contracts the brain cells of the whole brain and just sends the energy through the prefrontal cortex at the expense of the whole brain, which is related to sensing things holistically. It just senses things based on the me. And the me, who we think we are, is our story and it has nothing to do with reality. It prevents us from creating. We need perception in order to create. And it's static sound that prevents us from moving with life as life. It's like each of our thoughts is a program that moves us in a certain way according to that program. So we have very limited movements just like some of the first robots might be like. And life is a different harmony that produces different sound that might sound the same but they're coming from a different energy. And our nervous system is molting holograms. And I'm wondering if we can only last in map consciousness for a certain amount of time. Number of days, number of weeks, number of months just like somebody on LSD 
they take it and then they can't take any more for a few days, it won't have any effect. So in a way, once the higher states of map consciousness wear off, there's this time period before the brain can produce those chemicals again to go into those other states of consciousness. So again, it's just a different biorhythm. It's a biorhythm of consciousness. It comes in and it takes us over and it animates us, then it goes away and we're back to ego thought consciousness. And each time we go there, we get a little bit more acclimated to be animated by that. And I wonder if we project holograms from our nervous system. And I feel like the thought image algorithm is holographic. And I wonder if that's why it seems like the brain works on holographic principles. But I wonder if it really does. Or if it's just that the brain is so active in meeting reality and the mind with holograms with images and sounds already in the brain, that it seems like the brain works on holographic principles. But that could actually be the interference in the brain. It could be that the me, which is an illusion, works on holographic principles. But a clear brain might actually work on principles other than the hologram. The holograms are how we've been programmed to react. And it's the brain reacting instead of creating. So it's almost like the holograms and the images and sounds that are noise in our brain bouncing around are the me, are the program of the me, recordings. So the holographic principles in the brain are the recording principles. So if we're not projecting images and sounds, if our brain is clear, then we're not recording anything. And it will use the holographic principles where necessary in order to plan something, or if one needs to think of a memory for something, but it won't take over. So I think this holographic principle thing could be very small compared to something else that's happening. And it could be that creating is quantum, so the hologram is in the way of the quantum. And we live in our holograms and it's dirty light, just like there's dirty electricity. It's dirty light, and the light coming in is made dirty by past holograms. So there's a premature collapsing of the wave function by the old hologram. And I wonder if there's an art to forgetting. Our whole life is based on remembering, but we don't actually question the remembering. I think it's the most important thing to be able to forget. Because the remembering is all those images that meet reality and transform it into something that it's not. Reality is not my image of reality. I feel like psychosis is dying to everything that one has psychologically gathered. 
and feeling like the brain might actually die and being faced with that. I wonder if it could be done daily as opposed to it accumulating and then needing this psychosis as the emptying process. The emptying of the me, it feels like the me is going to die. Can we get good at dying inwardly? And I feel like psychosis is falling in consciousness, whereas mania is levity. And I don't see any problems with it. I feel like mania and psychosis are solutions for how we've been conditioned. And the conditioning is the problem. So how can we support people to go beyond conditioning? How do we support people in that transformation and not say, why aren't you who you were yesterday? And it seems like as we move, we move the infinity that we all share. So when I move my body, it's moving in space and it's actually changing the space and the relationship of other things to my body. So in a way, I've moved the other things in relationship to my body as well. So we're all moving that infinity that we all share. And can we speak infinitely from infinity? As we move the infinity, can we be in touch with that and speak as that instead of speaking as a thousand yesterdays? And when one gets in touch with that beauty, the game of society doesn't seem that real compared with the play of beauty. And I wrote this blurb. I don't like reading stuff, but I'm also lazy. Look for that beauty which is beyond programs. Beauty can't be programmed as beauty just is. When you see it, without naming it, you are beyond the word in the flow of beauty. It's choiceless awareness as it is infinite. So when one is seeing as beauty, all is beauty, and there is no need to have an entity, a chooser to pick something. There are no things that a separate entity chooses. Anything we choose is not actually there. It's just a program. Beauty can't be programmed. We all have that beauty which can't be programmed. Mania and psychosis is an allergic reaction to the non-beauty of thought and programs. It's okay to die into this beauty. Thought dies into beauty. Emptiness. Don't be afraid to be empty. Don't be afraid of this emptying of the content of consciousness. It's like pulling a plug on a drain and experiencing the whirlpool of thought drained through. The beauty is a magnet to unprocessed energies of the all. Since the beauty is of the all, the thought of all time also comes through. Don't be disturbed. It's like equilibrating one's ears during flight. Mania and psychosis is equilibrating thought for the all. And then I was thinking that beauty is color and shape. And so words are really talking about the movement of light as color and shape. And sometimes I'm aware that colors have gotten a lot brighter. And I feel this is a sign of increased perception because 
there's more distinction to the colors and there's more beauty to the colors and there's more information and the colors are brighter so one is more inclined to look more closely and at length at these beautiful things. So there's more information in that. So the intensity is to increase the subtle distinctions to see the language of beauty. And beauty is a different resonance than thought. And can we walk with wisdom in the realm of beauty and in the realm of thought programs? And I think the thought programs become more like buzzing bees flying by. If we react thinking we're going to get stung, we're more likely to get stung. And I was noticing I feel strong in the field of beauty. Beauty makes my nervous system feel strong. And interestingly enough, the night I had that trouble sleeping because it felt like consciousness was leaving my body, I was saying I was having some weird, scary premonitions, but I wasn't scared. But then that night, stuff went down in consciousness. So that's even more of a subtle thing is that if I have a perception that seems like a prophecy or something scary, it's almost like now I don't even feel the fear of that. It's not fearful, but then I still see that it's still a sign that my brain has gone too far in a way and needs to scale back. So I could see that as take something to calm my brain down, even if my brain feels calm, but I did see something that might be seen as upsetting but I have no idea thank you for listening to bipolar inquiry if you're enjoying the show please feel free to rate subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts remember use your voice craft your consciousness embody your potential enter a quantum paradigm the bipolar inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose treat cure or prevent any disease information in this show is not medical advice thanks again for listening and we'll catch you in the next episode <laughs>